0: center for education research and innovation we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact but how do you do that how does a researcher get to that point what we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity what we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity let's dive in
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit, and today I have another one of my good friends who happens to be also a scientist in Toronto at the University of Toronto, Dr. Stella Ing. Welcome, Stella. Thank you. So Stella is an associate professor at the Department of Speech Language Pathology and also the director of the Center for Interprofessional Education at USN in Toronto, as well as a scientist at the Wilson Center. So many hats that you're wearing. But before we get into the Main conversation. I I try to always start with a, a question that give us a sense of the person before the researcher. And I was wondering if you can tell me about yourself without telling me about your research. Who's Stella? What does Stella do when she's not wearing the researcher hat? <laughs>
0: hmm. Well, I think that I have a constant researcher hat on in a way Um, so I love the name of your podcast because curiosity is probably what drives me in all aspects of my life but um, I guess outside of the job I am a mom I have a toddler uh, a dog owner I have two dogs and they're a big part of our everyday life we include them in everything Uh, a recreational weightlifter which I know that you know And it's usually a fun fact that I share, although I have to admit I'm doing less of that these days, given everything else going on. Um, And yeah, ultimately, I am genuinely always curious and asking questions with the aim of building bridges in society.
1: That's very cool. So one of the things that uh, really um, struck my curiosity when I met you at the center was that you were coming from pediatric audiology. And I was wondering, the same as me, I'm an engineer in medical education or health professions education. You're coming from a different discipline. What's the, the story of your journey in coming into this field? Where these things start? Or is there a, a personal story that underpins your interest into this uh, kind of research?
0: Yeah, I think, thanks for bringing that up. That really goes back to what I said. So I was working as a school-based audiologist where my job was to help bridge between health professionals who worked outside of schools in a private practice or a hospital or a rehab setting and professionals of many types who worked in schools like teachers, psychologists, speech language pathologists, audiologists. Um, Everyone had a common goal of helping kids and these are diverse kids. They may have a hearing loss, they may have CP, they may have a combination of things going on. Um, and as an audiologist, I kept confronting challenges where even though everyone wanted to help, who doesn't want to help a child um, get what they need at school, we just kept running into the same challenges. And I wanted to help understand why. I was curious about it. I wanted to study what we could do to make things better. And that's what led me to this field. Mm-hmm. So you did
1: a, a postdoc with us at the center. And I know postdocs are becoming a little more popular these days. Did, you, did Your PhD at Western came to the center for a postdoc and then became a scientist. And I was wondering, how did the postdoc experience uh, help you to become the scientist and the researcher you are now? What was unique about that experience?
0: I think the postdoc did what my supervisor, Lorelai Lingard, always said a postdoc is meant to do, and that's to launch you. You know, so you finish your PhD, and you know, at the start of your PhD, you think when you're done, you're going to have answers and um, solutions. And really, what you're left with is more questions. And I was still practicing, um, so I've always found that useful to have something. On the ground that you're doing that keeps the research connected to that problem solving. Um, But what my postdoc did was help me really prioritize the questions, the theories that help you think about and ask those questions differently. Um, And then making sure that you're not just solving problems, but you're really reframing the problems. Because sometimes when you focus on jumping to solutions, you can actually perpetuate the problem. So I think the postdoc really grounded me in um, the importance of integrating theory into your research, even if that research came from a practical problem. Mm
1: -hmm. And it also
0: very practically taught me how to seek funding and be successful in that process, which, you know, I think you learn too late in the journey to becoming a scientist that your job is to be a writer and a fundraiser. <laughs> yep. And that's what allows you to pursue your research questions and hopefully to offer solutions to the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And how it has been for you now, like that part, because I totally agree towards the end of your training is that you, you don't realize the the need to become a fundraiser Have you learned the strategies for that or what has been the experiences in that area?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm honest, there's a big element of luck in acquiring research funding. I think I've been very lucky over the course of my career. But the lessons I learned in my postdoc about writing grants and also um, not just writing grants, but communicating the importance of what you're doing and that importance being twofold. Again I I think it's the practical importance and also the theoretical contribution. What are you doing that is beyond your local problem? How are you contributing to the field and to knowledge at large? Um, So I think that those two pieces then help you with fundraising. So yeah I think I've had you know for for us as education scientists I've had pretty good success in that realm. And a lot of it is directly attributable to lessons learned during my postdoc. Good. So in
1: that journey uh, from the PhD to postdoc to becoming a scientist, what has been one decision that you made that didn't turn out the way you planned it, but in hindsight, it ended up being a good decision for you?
0: Hmm. I think... You know, the project that I did in my postdoc that I focused on during my postdoc, like I said, came from those practical experiences working in the school board. And they were a divergence from my PhD, which was focused quite theoretically on reflection and reflective practice and critical reflection. And I remember people saying, why are you changing course? Because usually as a scientist, you kind of focus and You develop a program of research that keeps building on that. Um, And if you look at what I'm doing now, eight years after my postdoc finished, I'm right back to really focusing on critically reflective practice and how to teach for it and why we want to teach for it. Yet a lot of the research I've done has occurred in that school-based practice context. So it all came full circle. Um, the practical context in which I was practicing and in which we did our research um, at Siri has offered back a lot of lessons to the theories of critical reflection. Um, so it seemed like to some at the time, I changed course. but I think underpinning it all was still that theoretical grounding in reflection and critical reflection and It has worked out well, um, and now looking at where I am in an interprofessional space, that context of bringing different minds together, different perspectives together, um, it's a good context to have studied for over a decade. And that bridging, like I said, of the theoretical questions and the practical problems was strengthened by that what seemed like a divergence 10 years ago, but it wasn't really a divergence, it was just a shift, you know, as as I would say, it was a shift of foreground and background, I foregrounded that practical contextual problem for a while. Mm -hmm. And now it's shifted back where the foreground is the critical reflection, again.
1: Right. And how did you uh, navigate that because I imagine there was a lot of feelings of uncertainty because when we made those shifts, especially early in the career, it feels threatening, I think. Um, did, you, did you put out like, some kind of a strategies or relied on some people to stay afloat and make sure, okay, I'm doing this shift because I know it's going to be good?
0: Um, I think, again, so you know, I think the question before was you know, what I did that wasn't really planned, I think, but that worked out well. So I I don't think it was planned. And therefore, I didn't necessarily have strategies at the time. Other than I remember being labeled, you get labeled, right, people see you present one thing, or they see one paper, and they say, Oh, she's a whatever researcher. And I remember, ironically, when I first started my job in Toronto, and people would see me present that school-based work, they would label me as an interprofessional education or interprofessional collaboration researcher, which I didn't identify as. And I think I did deflect that label. Um, and I spent some years trying to foreground the reflection, critical reflection theory piece, in part because um, I think it's legitimizing in my context to have that theory first focus. So I did that for a while, but again, it's all come full circle. And now I'm working in a center that really values and prioritizes that interprofessional piece.
1: On that note, uh, you also have an interesting um, synergy because you're a researcher, but you're also a leader. You're the director of this center. How is that um, communication between those two hats or how do you navigate those two identities right now? What are some challenges, but also probably benefits?
0: So this is where, you know, you asked me who I am outside of my research, outside of my work, and um, you can call it whatever you want, but I can't separate it because I do believe in um, this concept of praxis, which is relevant to theories of reflection and critical reflection, where I think everything I do or everything I try to do anyway, is informed by theories of reflection and critical reflection. So that means that my leadership practice, the work I do as a leader, is constantly interrogated by me um, to see if I'm upholding those values and the principles from these theories. So, you know, theories of critical reflection would have me challenge the seemingly natural hierarchies of our workplaces. So as I step into a role with the title of director, am I doing that or am I just falling into what I've seen or what is expected as the director of a center? And so I am constantly questioning and challenging and thinking, how could we do this differently? How could we run a team meeting differently? How could I address people differently differently? How can I work with someone whose title is administrative assistant, assistant in a way that is um, potentially disruptive and maybe ultimately helpful to functioning together as a team towards a common goal? So I think that as a leader, I try to be critically reflective, meaning I'm questioning assumptions and structures with the hopes that we will make a more um, just and collaborative and ethical and compassionate world. Mm-hmm. Perfect.
1: So in this um, kind of in this discipline or field that we are working in as researchers academia, the prevalence of failure is pretty high. Like We get rejected papers, rejected grants, etc. But how do you celebrate a success? Can you share with us?
0: I think I'm trying to do that more deliberately. It's easy to do, I think, when others succeed. So, if someone on our team has a success, we name it, you know, we email around about it or we'll chat about it in a meeting. Um, We'll promote it because I do think it's important to celebrate these things for exactly the reasons you mentioned. Um, Personally, I think I used to kind of let these things go by. Um, but, you know, with the, with the pandemic over the last year, I've been pretty intentional about celebrating every little step, every little success. So even if it's just, um, a project gets through to the next stage, it's not done. You haven't won the grant, but maybe it made it to the next stage. I think that's worth celebrating. Um, you know, with my new job, there were... (laughs) baby steps towards it being real. And I did celebrate every step. Like interview went well. Okay. Let's have a nice dinner. You know, get the offer. Let's have a nice dinner. Sign the contract. Let's have a nice dinner. And I'm very fortunate to be able to celebrate these things. Obviously I'm in a considerable position of privilege to be able to have all these mini celebrations, but I do think it's really important to focus on those positives. So it's something I'm working on doing.
1: Right. And also on, on the positive side of things, what would be one unexpected, a very gratifying moment in your career so far?
0: I think the most gratifying moments usually involve students. And it's hard for me to pinpoint a moment, but you know, I think that many of us have these, these moments, sometimes it's something like an email that you get from someone you haven't seen in years. Um, And they'll just say, Oh, you know, I, I took a class with you, and you may not remember me, but, and then they tell you this story, and usually you do remember them. And it's just really, like you said, in this field, you get so many rejections, and there's so much waiting. Um, And a lot of what we do is not tangible Mm. in terms of, you know, I used to practice and that I miss that kind of like constant tangible impact that you feel. Mm -hmm. And in, in research and uh, these types of leadership roles, I think that those types of feedback are fewer and further between. So the most gratifying is those are those kinds of emails and um, people getting back in touch to just let you know, how something maybe shaped their thinking, um, shaped the course of their career. So yeah, I, I tend to, you know, you talked about celebrations. I tend to sort of celebrate those. I actually have, look, just looking right in front of me right now on my bulletin board, um, I printed out a couple of emails that I got from people because just when you're having a hard day, I think it's nice to, mm-hmm. to see that, okay, there are some positive impacts of what we're doing, even if we're not feeling it right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was working at the SickKids Learning Institute, the director at the time told me once about, you always have to have a happy folder. And that's where <laughs> you store your, the emails that people send you, take a photo of a nice card, And it's true, when you're not having a great day, that's a nice way of lifting spirits yeah. up. Yeah. On, a, on a lighter note, um, I think we all have these kind of oopsie moments when we get into into this community. And I was wondering if, if you can share with us some situation that made you go, ooh, long time ago might have been like, oh gosh, that was not good, but now it's kind of funny. It's one of those moments of, oh, I landed here.
0: <laughs> hmm. Do you mean like a mistake
1: or? No, yeah, maybe something like uh, uh, sitting next to a person that, you should recognize and you didn't recognize oh him. So let's...
0: you know I have a funny story about you oh um, if we're just looking for something light and funny and yeah this was I think shortly after my postdoc and I had just moved to Toronto and started the new position and was still kind of in between centers right like I would still support and go to Siri things and also to the mm-hmm. Wilson Center things and at a conference you were giving a talk which I wanted to see and a series of hilarious things had happened in trying to navigate to your talk which led to me sitting next to one of my Toronto-based colleagues in like the front row of your talk and we had been slightly late because we couldn't find the room and we for some reason (laughs) Found ourselves sitting at the front of the room watching your talk, holding someone else's phone. Like I we had just in our attempts to find you, the room, the timing, we we accidentally stole a colleague's phone, which we were using. Oh my. And so we're sitting in the front row of your talk. And I had just left Siri, was so grateful for everything I'd gotten, you know, to do and learn there. And I'm laughing. Like I couldn't stop myself from laughing in the front row of your talk. And I felt terrible so in terms of something that was an oopsie embarrassing moment yeah i i always hoped you hadn't noticed and that you didn't feel offended (laughs) but these are the things that you know you said to keep it light like in our in our line of work i think we have some fun with the people that we work with and and that's such a a joy to be able to have those moments
1: oh for sure like uh, it's about the people you work with that makes things so rewarding right is those experiences
0: well, i'm sorry about that all these years later syra i <laughs> well it, it goes <laughs> to tell you that i
1: didn't notice probably i was too nervous i was just <laughs> focused on deliver the talk <laughs> that's it <laughs> so if you were to um reflect back in in your career we know that the things that we do kind of um it's not. sometimes it's not the same who we are is sometimes not the same of the things that we do, but how have been or taking the decision of becoming a researcher and being in this career changed you as a person? I know you have said that it's kind of intertwined, but how do you think one molded the other or had made you a little bit different as a person?
0: I think that my maybe my job. Um, and the context in which I now work have um, necessitated some personal growth. And I'm certainly more uh, direct Mm -hmm. and less conflict-averse and um, less willing to um, just laugh off or let pass um, comments or actions that I believe would benefit from being, you know, pointed out, dealt with. And I think that that is a direct result of my career. And maybe it would have happened anyway in another line of work, But I think that um, experiences at work that required me to be more assertive, more direct, in addressing interpersonal um, conflicts, for lack of a better word, have definitely influenced how I then deal with those things in my personal life. I think I I used to be more passive about these things. So, yeah.
1: That's a great example. Thank you so much for sharing. So what are you working now and what is your next curiosity, if I may ask?
0: Well, I've been, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, like I said, trying to focus, on theories of reflection and critical reflection. And that's because research has shown that these are capabilities that enable professionals to be better at the social and systemic aspects of care, collaboration, advocacy, systems-based practice, navigating our complex system, um, ethical issues, and faced questions like, well, can you teach it? And if you can teach it, how do you know it really works? And because, you know, I'm, I, I've used qualitative approaches primarily, um, the kinds of answers I would provide didn't always satisfy people who wanted hard numbers. And so I recently did a study that um, evaluated the effects of teaching for critical reflection on people's future, what I call and others call ways of seeing and being. And that's why it's been hard to study quantitatively, because what's a way of seeing? What's a way of being? To me, it's that lens, that constant lens that makes you question and challenge practices and make them more ethical, more compassionate, more collaborative. That's hard to measure. And we came up with a way to measure it that I think um, is more authentic than things like self-report scales. Um, It doesn't assess it as being... Better or worse, but really just represents like, were these people seeing and being in a more critically reflective way in this future experience? And it is quantitative. Uh, we used Bayesian statistics, and that's not something I can personally do, but it's why we have collaborative teams in research. So I'm now at the point where I'm um, continuing to ask questions that I think we've previously avoided because we didn't have the right tools to answer them, or that we answered using the next best thing, which might be a self-report scale, which has always felt um, limited, right? Like you think of an empathy scale. uh, and, And that obviously has its limits in terms of how authentically and fully it can capture something as complex as empathy. So I'm now applying that type of um, evaluative or outcome measuring tool to other situations where we're trying to get at those fuzzy, hard to measure, but important constructs and concepts in health professions education.
1: So I don't know if I missed it, and I thoroughly enjoyed your talk at the Bayfield meeting. But I think it was one of the entrances in combining quantitative with qualitative work. What was the catalyst for you to start navigating those waters um, in addition to, I imagine you have a pretty good team working together.
0: The catalyst was an argument in a journal club oh, um, interesting. where we, the journal club was reading a paper I wrote about, um, <laughs> there was this quote in it, something like, you know, it, it wasn't this obviously, but it was basically like, let's just leave reflection alone in terms of trying to quantify and measure and assess and evaluate because when you do those things this this construct that describes the very in the moment um kind of organic way of being and you try to put that into numbers it changes it and you can't quite capture it and then when you can't quite capture it but you try you end up misrepresenting and oversimplifying. So I was trying to fight the push in health professions education to turn everything into a tool and turn everything into a number because sometimes practice needs art. Sometimes practice needs something that's messy and like leave it messy because the mess is part of it. And what makes us professionals, what makes us practitioners is that we can navigate a mess if it were always straightforward and just follow these 10 steps and it's going to work, then we wouldn't really, you know, that, that could be done by anybody, anywhere of any age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could teach your seven-year-old how to do these things if it were that simple. And so I had written that and in this journal club, there there was like a big star in our field there. And, and a lot of, more experimentalist, quantitative thinkers there. And they were kind of like literally banging their heads with way of seeing. (laughs) What are you talking about? Um, And if this exists and if it can be taught as you so claim, then it has to be measurable. And I felt like, okay, fine. Let's find a way then. I don't believe we're currently doing it justice in the ways it's being measured. It is being measured. You know, Uh people are grading reflections that are written down as though that represents this ongoing, messy, reflective practice that I'm talking about. Um, People have developed rubrics to say, this was good reflection, this was deeper reflection, you know, people are doing it, but I don't think they're doing it justice. So let's try. And that's what led to this uh, current line of research that I'm embarking on.
1: And how it has changed your thinking, because you said that you were not convinced or that you were doing, were doing things in the proper way, but now you said that you have found a way.
0: Um, It's changed my thinking in that, I guess I've realized it's not about quantitative or qualitative. And, you know, I talked about not wanting a label of being an IPE person because I found that limiting. I also no longer want the label of being a qualitative person because I find that limiting. I think solid researchers use the appropriate approaches to answer their thoughtful questions and know their limitations. So seek outside help when they don't have the expertise to apply those approaches. Um, And so I don't consider myself qualitative or quantitative, but I have theory and practice driven questions that require sometimes sophisticated, sometimes simple, research tools, um, and this Bayesian approach is interesting because it's sort of the, the current latest thing in statistics, and it really focuses, and this is where anyone who's a statistician listening will be like, ooh, she got that really wrong, but it really focuses on quantifying uncertainty, and, and you know, in the context of this global pandemic, you see people stating things with grand certainty and then they have to backtrack it or, you know, they're trying to counter public health messaging that does acknowledge uncertainty and might frame something like based on what we know right now, we're going to go with this approach. It's not certain. And, you know, somehow somebody thinks actually it's very certain this is what we should be doing. And what I like about this um, new approach to statistics is that upfront you're acknowledging and quantifying the uncertainty of your estimates and that paradigmatically aligns well with my positions on science. It's a process, it's a journey, we're chasing truths but uh, we don't always have, well I don't think we'll ever have the final solid permanent answer and I think that this approach um reflects that well, which can hopefully help heal some of the public misunderstanding and mistrust and distrust in science, which you know, some of it is warranted based on the things science has done well and done wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: Perfect. Okay, we are we are towards the end of the interview, and I want to end with the kind of what if question or the, the thing that you will do growing up. If you hadn't chosen to be a researcher. Where do you think you would have ended up being or doing?
0: I would be a guidance counselor. I can answer that right away, uh, or some kind of maybe not like a high school guidance counselor, but some type of uh, career mentoring <laughs> role I, for sure. And what drives that? Was something in
1: growing up for you, or
0: no? I think it's just that my tendencies in whatever role I've been in, whether clinical, whether as a friend, or in my current job, or as a scientist, the part that I can't help myself from doing is when um, you're just chatting with people. And like, I I see, I I, I think I see connections and opportunities. And um, friends and family members have joked that like, I can see aspects of the future. And Mm -hmm. I think I mean, I don't mean that in any kind of <laughs> psychic way, but like i can I can I can um, foresee mm-hmm. possibilities based on, you know, trends and experiences. And I think that my passion is for talking to people about their interests and their hopes and opportunities. and um, yeah, I think that would be fun and rewarding. and in my alternate life that's probably what I'd end up doing
1: <laughs> and I must say it has been one of the fastest answers that we have got so far <laughs> thank you so much Estella. it was a joy talking to you today thanks Ira and to all of you thank you for listening today uh, uh, please tune in next time have a good day
0: This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinaro. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.